Welcome everybody to the first podcast of 2017. I have the honour of being visited by Ant Wilson, MBE, who is the Director of Building Engineering at ACOM. He's just been announced that you're going to receive your MBE on 2nd of March. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for, for coming in to, to speak to me. My pleasure. You started off as a public health engineer, am I right? In, yeah, that's the, that's the job I got offered at the company. I, I, you could say I started off as a structural engineer mm. because I went to university to do structural engineering right. at the School of Architecture. But my first placement in that was working on tunnelling, which would be classed as public health engineering because it was sewage and right. sewers. And then I worked for PSA in their public health department. Uh, and then I worked for Hawley for a bit doing uh, building services. But my job offer at Oscar Faber in 79 was to join the uh, public health engineering department. Fantastic. Um, which I did for, for three months until, it sounds arrogant, and I got a bit bored with it. <laughs> I thought, where's any engineering in this? Yeah. And uh, they said, well, I could go and do three months in the R&D group, mm. uh, research and development, which was then something called um, Faber Computer Operations. And I got a bit hooked on modelling and writing software sure. and trying to simulate buildings and work with 3D designs. And one of the reasons I joined Oscar Faber, at the time there were only, I think there was three, probably Atkins Arabs and uh, Oscar Faber, who had computer-aided design advanced to 3D class detection uh, linked with costs, linked with um, specifications. Mm. And a lot of people think this idea of BIM and what we do with linking things is new. Yeah. And... I joined a company that had software for heat gains and cooling loads that are developed in the 60s on an IBM A frame. So. It does sound very much like what we do these days, doesn't it? But yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I, I grew in that business for, for a while, selling software, uh, developing it, specking it, working with people like Autodesk and Bentleys and uh, at the time uh, Sonata was a, a 3D lead model which was more um, object-orientated in terms of its nature we mm. spent a lot of time or we could say wasted a lot of time trying to get the databases to work better so you could access the data quicker and uh, the, the thing then was the computers were nothing like they are today no of course not. how much were you much, saying much they cost? <laughs> oh they cost a fortune i think the first color monitor i had was twenty five thousand pounds for just a color monitor and back then as well that would have yeah, been yeah you'd get something much better for 80 quid now <laughs> in terms of the resolution that what you'd well you wouldn't get anything as bad as they were no. and you're paying a lot for it but now, yeah, I said to you earlier that uh, I started at Oscar Paper on £4,500 a year, right, and yet yeah. the computer I was working on, uh, we would regularly spend 100000 or a quarter of a million pounds mm. on the, the engine, mm. and each monitor could be, even a black and white one, could be 5000 and right. the colour one later on came on board, and digitizers were ten to £15,000. So you're a massive investment into research and development mm. and now computing is just so cheap in comparison oh, and we yeah. can do so much more that my worry is well, how comes we haven't gone so much further we should be a much further advanced i think because some of the software has not really uh, gone that much further i think mm. uh, than it had that when you started yeah yeah oh the, the, it visually it looks good and we got prettier pictures and we got better rendering and we've got things you can do now that you couldn't do then mm. but some of the technical stuff needs a real injection of uh, you thinking, I think. So would you say that it's, uh, has technology got a, a much greater role to play in sustainability than it has already, do you think? I think it has. I think, well, everything now seems to want to be smart or grid or connected or have 
in building smart meters and smart grids and smart cities and smart mm. communities. And yes. We want everything to be smart. Now, a lot of the stuff that has that smart label is pretty dumb and it doesn't do much at all. Yeah. It just links to an internet. So you could say if it's interconnections you want, and we do need that and we need things to uh, link, mm. we've got to think more and more now about systems as opposed to individual components. Right. So that's been said for many years. That's not a new thing. It's mm. no good just saying, I've got this bit of kit and that bit of kit and this bit of kit. They're all the state of the art. Mm. But how do you link them together? Right. Um, automatic controls and how we deal with controlling stuff. We can uh, Sensors are so cheap compared to what used to be. We have sensors all over the place. We can have intelligence to interrogate the data. Mm. And I think one of the things we've got at the moment is so much data that we don't really know what to do with it. Right. And we talk about big data and the Internet of Things and everything being connected. But the people that are going to really come out of it are those, and we need to do it in our industry, is mine that data to find out what are we learning and then use that in setting the, the scene for how education moves forward. To well, indeed. Up on it. I mean, I think it was Dwight Wilson uh, from Imtech at the, uh, the conference who said that we are collecting data digitally, but we're still mining it manually. And I suppose yeah. it's a way, we've got to find better ways of doing that. Yeah, well, I think some of the, the, the big changes have been people like Google moving into that space of buying that, or people now saying it's not just good enough to report it, you've got to synthesise it into something that's meaningful. Right. When I ask people usually how they first became a building services engineer, they usually tell me that they didn't know building services engineering was a thing when they, uh, when they first started. Would that be the same for you? Or? <clears throat> yeah, totally, actually. <laughs> I went to university to do structural engineering. Yeah. I was so fortunate in going to Bath University, which was an integrated course then between architects, structural engineers and building services. Right. So even though I went to study structural engineer, I enjoyed the subjects of lighting and acoustics and um, heat in spaces and thermodynamics more than I did things like soil mechanics and mm -hmm. the structural elements. And I did the two years joint, so I had to do subjects that probably benefited me a lot, but I found them a struggle at the time, like history of architecture and I had to write essays and I mm. don't like writing. Right? <laughs> I see. Um, but I changed after two years because after year three and four, you had to specialise into one of the, the groupings. Yeah. And I discovered a subject in building services engineering that I was totally unaware of. Right. I just didn't know. But when I looked at the, the things I had to learn to back it up, like the acoustics modules and the lighting modules, and uh, also not, not, not just the subjects themselves, but I found actually, if I'm honest, mm. the people that were teaching building services were more inspiring to right. me than Interesting. the other ones. And it was, you know, if, if I could change, I would change, and a lot of people did. Probably yeah. half the course change from doing structures to doing services. Fantastic. I mean, because it sounds like a very collaborative model that you're describing there at Bath, because... Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, um, it needs more of that now, mm. because um, you learn to work, and you probably come out more as a consultant. So I did placements in contracting with Bovis Civil Engineering. I did mm. placements within government and working with government, and I do a lot of that now. I did a placement with Hawley in Birmingham, and I worked from a bit in Bristol as well um, in, in the late 70s. Uh, and in doing that, the training you had lent you, because in the years three and four that I was there, you worked mm -hmm. on collaborative projects. Right. So you were like a consultant to six or seven architects, mm. offering advice on how to heat, cool it, light it. Sure. And so did the structural engineers do that. And then you'd take one of those after the first term and work it up into your final year projects. Oh, and you had to service it. So you had to do the lighting layouts, you had to do the daylighting counselling, mm. you had to do heat losses and gains and size the, the vent system and the radiation and size the pipes and the ducts. Sure. So it's very practical in the sense of what I did 
as a consultancy of sizing stuff and designing stuff and understanding its interrelation was what I was taught at university. Mm. And I think the real benefit it was because you'd had some uh, structural engineering input and you'd had architectural engineering, you'd grown up with the, you're on a par with all of them because you're right. working all the time. It's the most natural thing to talk with architects and structural engineers to try and get a solution. And other people would say it's all siloed and you've got these and those and course, the engineers yeah. think the architects are stupid and don't know what they're doing. But you got to, you know, I, I work with them all the way through and you know there's some brilliant architects out there, really good working with them. It's, it sounds like it was very inspiring a way to learn. In, in terms of getting young people into engineering these days, it, do, do you think that that would be more of a better way to learn for them? Because obviously there is what people call the uh, sort of skills crisis in engineering. Yeah. Is, is, is that something that maybe could help? I, I think it is, and I think because of that privilege I had of doing that course mm. and being able to sample it and having not known anything about a building services engineer is probably one of the things that makes me want to go in and talk to kids in school, which I do quite a lot of, and yeah. talk to people in universities to try and show them a broader picture of you know the, the whole construction industry is is actually quite complex, and people you know don't know what a QS does or what no, a project indeed. manager does or um, Probably most people don't know the difference between what odd soil is, is a consultancy side and a contracting side. Mm. And they're all really important roles, and you've got to work together. You, you can't do it all on your own. And I think from the stuff I do in schools and career fairs at school, um, sometimes we, we portray almost an architect because we show pictures of the buildings and not of actually what we do. Right. And sometimes what we do is really clever, but we hide it behind the ceiling void, and no one sees the plant well, room, and no one sees away, what isn't we it? do. And probably a good building services system is one that people can't see or hear or know about. Mm. So if it doesn't make a noise, if it doesn't uh, interfere with what someone wants to do, which is the comfort side Leak of it. Leak on you or something. Yeah. And that's probably why I liked it a bit more than structures, because I would this is probably a bit controversial, I would say construct, uh, structurally, people don't get it wrong very often. Mm. You, know, that, that you can get the right answer and you can oversize it a bit to the point where it isn't going to fail. Mm. and you've got a resilience in it. The one thing I do know about building services, we never get it right. right. Now, we never get it right for one or two people there, and if we can get just 95 or 90% of the people happy with it being, to them, perceived as comfortable, it's not too drafty, it's not too cold, it's not too hot, it's not too bright, it's not too glary, mm. that thing varies with people and their responses in terms of what they're wearing or their metabolic rates and things. So there's not an exact answer. No. So even if I've got my job and I've done it to the best of my ability and I've followed every rule that I should do and I'm a good engineer, mm. if you've got an office with 5,000 people in it, you're likely to have at least 50, if not 500 people who may not be happy with it. Sure. Because they'll say, well, I'm cold or I'm hot or I'm not quite right. So it's not an exact science and it's something that to me merged the arty side and I loved lighting and I did a lot in lighting and mm. find that really exciting working in a lighting environment. How you link daylighting, how you, you deal with the new technologies coming on board, how can you link it with the heating and cooling, how do you optimise your building, how does the form of the building work? Right. Now some of that people would say might be touching on the architect's things, but if you work in collaboration you're all trying to get a better product mm. and our role is essential in it being a building that either works or it fails. Sure. And it's not usually the structure that would cause a building to fail. Mm. That, uh, it could be if they've got some cancer or what they might call it in their steel work and the steel's rusting and it's, sure. it's going to fall down, but most buildings uh, need a refurbishment and we've got a lot of uh, ways of improving 
you know, the well-being of people in the building through what we do. Well, indeed. I mean, I, I guess the problem is trying to communicate all of that to, to young people and to try and get them interested in engineering. Do you have any ideas as to how we might do that? <laughs> I, I do my best. <laughs> um, I think if people do need people that can inspire them, I think for every engineer in the business, uh, we've all been affected by people who've hopefully inspired us and influenced us. Sure. And I've had a catalogue of people at all levels of industry, I would say, have inspired me, have helped me, have guided me, who've supported me and encouraged me. And for any senior people there, it's our remit to actually take on the younger ones and mentor them and encourage them. and, mm. and offer them the skills and the benefits we've received through our careers. Sure. Uh, I did a, a, you were saying about on LinkedIn, I had a thing of, no, about 18 months ago from LinkedIn, said, have you ever thanked the people that have uh, inspired you <laughs> and mentored you? And I thought, I'm not sure I have, and there's been loads. So I wrote my first sort of bloggy thing yeah. on LinkedIn, and I put it on saying, well, my main influence must be my dad, who was a mechanical engineer. Sure. And it, the great thing was, that while I was at university, I never got any maths things that he couldn't do and help me with, <laughs> which is a benefit to anyone. And my brother, two and a half years older than me, he's, he did maths at Southampton. My sister did maths and was a maths teacher. So I had maths and that in the family, but my dad was a, re I was a really good engineer. Mm. And he inspired me in the engineering side. Sure. And working with, with Oscar Faber in the early days, I got working with a chap called Steve Irving. That a lot of people will know of Steve and his work and his pioneering work. You couldn't want a nicer guy to work with. His integrity was a phenomenal and really bright and smart. Mm. And he spent hours helping me and guiding me and directing me. Sure. And uh, we had a TED group with Doug Oton, who's just got the gold medal. And Doug, massive inspiration to me. Alec Moyer, who's a president of Sibsey. Mm. Um, but the guy who set up that group, uh, and perhaps an unsung hero of where BIM is now, mm. is a guy with a real vision in that company at the time, was a chap called Peter Down, who was one of the senior partners. And he'd been out, I think it was to New York, and he'd got this vision that he wanted 3D building service integrated with clash detection and the online specs and mm. the costing. And he'd got there, he'd got uh, an electronic spec when I joined. He'd got 3D coordination and clash detection in the 70s, wow. from 73. And he was one of the directors of Faber Computing Operation, and that transitioned with Alec Moore and Doug Ooten being directors of FACET, mm. which I ended up being a director of with Steve Irving. And that whole team, including Peter Sheaves, who another great guy. I can think of countless people within uh, what would now be known as ACOM, but Oscar Faber at the time, who were amazing people. Mm. And that is transitioned now into, we, we've got, you know, people who I work with now are equally brilliant in terms of doing it. Yeah. But what we need to do is inspire those people who I think are brilliant to really mentor and look after and bring the young people on, inspire them. Because we're in such a fantastic industry, it's mm. just... Uh, not, not talked about enough about what a great career you can have in building services. Well, indeed. I mean, you obviously, for many years of your career, been part of SIBSI. Um, tell me, how's that been for you? What, what's been... Well, I, I started with SIBS before I had the E on the end. <laughs> before the uh, E. <laughs> uh, in 79. And I was a student member. I was a graduate member and a member and now a fellow. Um, I've worked on quite a lot of committees, but right across the spectrum. Mm. I remember at one stage, and, and it's, it's just happened there actually, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but people when I applied for SIBSI membership actually already thought I was a member. <laughs> um, because I'd done quite a lot on committees, on papers committees, on some of the technical documents. Uh, and I wasn't a member, I was a graduate member, so there's always that distinction between a full member and not. 
how how has it sort of affected your career then being a member of Sipsi? What what sort of things have you done? Oh, <laughs> it's given me so many opportunities. Um, there's so many great people that have been in Sibsi. Mm. Um, I suppose I'm fortunate because um, AECOM have got a, a, a history through the Oscar Faber legacy. Of Oscar Faber himself was the president and Robbie Kell was the president. Mm. And when I started, um, I did some work with Peter Martin, who is another great of the industry, really a phenomenal guy. And I did some work with him on Robinson's College and he was there. And he got a CBE for his, his work within the industry and he was president of SIBSI. Sure. Uh, president of the IHVE, I should say. Of course, yeah. And he's the only guy who actually got the gold, silver and the bronze award <laughs> of the, the institution. I think that's still unique that he's got all three. Oh, fascinating. Um, and uh, Robbie Kell was another guy and his wife's still alive now in, in St. Albans. And I've had so many inspirational people of that stature. Mm. Um, I remember working with, with Alec Moore and I still see Alec at a run for club and he's a great guy and I still see Doug. I'm seeing Doug on Monday and we're going to the uh, Royal Academy for a, an event there together. So I've got a lot of friends mm. uh, that have come out of it. I've met some really good people that, you know, you go back through loads of the presidents and people that have been an inspiration to me. You know, mm. Don Lipo, amazing guy. Uh, Graham Manley, who was also um, the HBCA president. Um, I can think back of loads. You go back to Brian Moss and David Lush and you could catalogue all these people. And mm. the thing that's hit me is they're all really great guys. And what a fantastic industry where you can actually genuinely say that all these guys, like David Wood, who, who's chairman of Rumford, he was a Sibsey president. I knew him when he was a director. It's Alexander Gibb. Fantastic guy. David Arnold. It so it's not about the company you're in because, yes, my company is full of great people, but mm. the industry is full of amazing people. And I don't just mean that to, to name drop these, sure. these people. I mean, generally, all of these people have had a real positive impact upon me. Mm. And what it's made me want to do is to try and almost model building something, something as they've done to me. They've inspired me, all of these people I've mentioned. Mm. They may not know it, but they have, sure. because it's been positive things. And every little thing we can do with an apprenticeship, uh, an apprenticeship, an apprentice coming in, mm. or someone who's come in and done a week's work experience, or people who've done uh, a little placement with you when on university, have you given them a real positive image of what it can be about? We're here to make the world a better place. We're here to change people's lives for the better of because of the environment we can create for them. And I think there's a big responsibility on us. And I don't think we ever say enough about the responsibility, mm. but the pleasure of doing that and working with wonderful people that are inspirations is... I've just been so fortunate. Fantastic. I really think that. I'm, I mean, yeah, you, you've, uh, aside from your sort of work within, within Sibsi, you've also contributed massively to various publications and guides and all kinds of uh, technical stuff within Sibsi. Why? What, 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 have you been, uh, what have you been getting out of that and what have you been putting into it? Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose the reason I could do it was A, the company allowed me to do it yeah. and encouraged me to do it. Uh, and then once you start on that, um, certain individuals can be a big inspiration to you. Um, I was very involved in the lighting side of it. Before it was called the Society of Lighting, it was a lighting division. Mm. And there's some key people in that, like Lou Bedox and um, people uh, like Vic Crisp at BRE and Tony, Anthony Slater. And Vic Crisp um, got me involved in some things probably in the early 80s because mm. I'd I'd written a bit of software to look at switching and dimming and energy savings from lighting controls. 
and uh, I'd done a paper, um, and he said, well, you, can you present it at one of the uh, meetings at Sibsey? And I would have been 24, 25, wow. and it was at the Royal Institution. I remember him after that, and I'm thinking, this guy's a doctor of this, and what an amazing guy he is, and fantastic, which Vic was. And I got to know so many people through being involved with Sibsey that weren't in our business, but when you then needed things or some information and you get on committees within it, and you're just a small person around that table with 20 other people, and I would have been in the early days on those things when I was in my young 20s, yeah. the youngest person around the table, but I knew a little bit about the computer side of what we were doing. And I had the ability to learn from the top guy in Phillips and Thorne and the leader of the research labs here and some people from universities who were doing pioneering research. Mm. And I suppose it gave me a, a mix of getting quite a lot of academic input. And you know, I never did, went and did a master's. I never went on and did a doctorate or those things. But I've worked with some of the brightest minds must be in the country. And I'm still fortunate enough to go and speak at universities and have links to universities and have some input into universities. Mm. And it's, it's almost nice to be valued. Cause yeah. you, and you don't do it because you want to be valued, but I find collaborating in those areas where you've got people from industry, people from academia, we're trying to do something for the common good of getting a document that makes things better, or the standard of what we do, or the way we commission something better. Um, there's always more to learn. And I think what, I've, what I have learned is I know a lot less now than I thought I did. <laughs> and there's so much more to know that I only know a fraction of what building services is about. Mm. It's, and it is just uh, changing all the time. And we've really got to keep up to date. Everyone needs to keep their CPD up to date. Everyone needs to engage, I think, more with SIBSE mm. to make sure that, that they're understanding the latest things, getting to the techie conferences, going to the main conferences, being in regional meetings, being in your own local meetings. Mm. Uh, they put on some great events, and I would say the majority of SIBSE people don't have access to it. Right. Sorry, they all have access to it, but they don't take up that offer. Of course, yeah. And I think what I've done, probably more out of it, I've had the ability to take it up because I've been in a company that have encouraged me in that area. Mm. So everyone needs encouragement, so I want to encourage people to a, get involved with your schools, get in there and help promote building services, get along to your SIBSE uh, meetings, uh, do more for SIBSE. The more you put in, without doubt, the more you'll ever get out of it. And I've got so much out mm. of SIBSE. Mm. It, it goes on and on, really. They, they've supported me tremendously. It's a fantastic story. I mean, uh, I've been part of it for so many years. But a uh, sort of more difficult question now, then. You talked about how um, you've seen technology changing, but actually not changing all that much sometimes. If you had to name one thing that you think in the industry has changed sort of beyond all recognition over the last, to all the time you've been here, what would you say that is? Lighting. Uh, I think LED lighting and what's happening within the lighting industry is amazing. I've, I've always been excited by lighting from going to the, one of the first conferences I did it, which was the Sibsey Lighting Conference at Cambridge University and being inspired by, I suppose, Professor Bell and uh, um, I remember some early days with, with people there. And I found it exciting then. I probably find it even more exciting. This morning I was just looking at new LEDs and how uh, Cambridge University is working with Plessy over some new uh, materials. It's material scientists there working on ways that the LEDs can boost green content and get higher efficiencies. Yeah. And I always find that stuff fascinating when you can improve it so much. And when you think of uh, old light bulbs and you think of then the fluorescent lights yeah, and what yeah. you did with fluorescents and some of the new technologies that have come out with induction lighting and now 
where LEDs are, I think the change in uh, LED lighting and it dominating everything. Mm. And the guy said to me this morning, what, what not? I said, well, I remember five and a half years ago paying an extra £1,000 on my car to get LED headlights. And I thought that was it. I also put a solar panel on my car at the time. I had a solar roof on it. Oh, wow. And I was trying to do what I felt were the right things. And probably, if I ever did it on payback, they'll never pay back. But now I've got the next version of that one, and LED lights are, you know, standard. Yeah, And the LED has become standard. And what people don't realise is the rate of change in that. So the problem I think we're facing now is LED is seen as a thing for saying it's high efficiency. Mm. And the difference between a poor LED and a good LED mm. is tremendous. You might have some LEDs that are giving you 30, 35 lumens per watt. You can have a top-end LED that's giving 150, 160. Sure, yeah. And yet it's still branded an LED. Mm. And it's not just the output you're getting, it's the colour and the renditioning and all the other bits that go with it. And I think lighting, we're all inside too much of the time. We need to get out more. But everyone needs lighting. Yeah, and of course. You can't say, well, it's a daylit building. Yeah, it is daylit, but it's also dark at 4 o'clock in the winter, and <laughs> you need light on as soon as you get in. Mm. We all need lighting. And the improvements in lighting, I think, have been, to me, a, a highlight in just trying to keep pace with the rate of change in lighting. Mm. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, Ant. It's been lovely to speak to you, and uh, congratulations once again on your MBE, and I uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, that's about all we have time for this month. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you'd like to hear more, we have five more podcasts available on SoundCloud. That's www.soundcloud.com forward slash build to perform. We also post them on the Build to Perform blog, which you can find on the Sibsi website under blogs. And we also post regularly on our Twitter account. So if you look for at Sibsi and then search hashtag build to perform, you'll find all of the blogs we've posted on there. Once again, everybody, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next month.